If you could stand with me for the uh, scripture reading. Okay. Galatians uh, chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. <clears throat> Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was, was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, how wonderful is it to be with you together on the 4th of July and um, be able to celebrate a better freedom, not just free freedom from tyrannical governments or military powers, um, but freedom from an eternal death and separation from God. Um, freedom from the power of this world and from Satan himself. Isn't that good news? So it's so good to be here um, with you this morning. I hope that um, you heard some of the things that have been going on. We're trying to um, inspire just um, life together as we formally um, enjoyed it before COVID. So we're, we're um, kicking off the summer with some fun activities to do, ways to reach the community um, and just make our presence known and show the love of Christ. So I hope that you can participate. We do need a couple more helpers on each day for those movies. There's a thing in the back if you can help us out. I do need some, some those bounties are heavy and, um, and I need some, some strong muscles. You know, so if that's you, um, I'll even take moderately kind of above weak muscles um, if that's okay. So, um, but we would love, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I hope that you can enjoy yourselves and please um, consider uh, July, I think it was 25th. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have some food and um, the, um, some fun outside for your families. I hope that you can bring a guest with you, too. Um, it's basically our welcome back, right? Um, a, lot of, a lot of places are doing that. Welcome back to the movies. Welcome back to camp. Welcome back to buying a Toyota. We've been doing that anyway. But, um, but you know, so, so it's, a, it's a good idea. Welcome back. Um, let, let's, uh, let's celebrate together well. I hope that you can be present with us. So we're in the book of Galatians, and today um, the, the subtitle, if you'll notice, of our, of our sermon um, title is Slavery or, Slavery or Freedom. And that was, again, by chance, if you recall, 
Um, a few weeks ago on Father's Day, we did a message on the fatherhood of God and the adoption um, of his people as children. And that was based ent entirely coincidental. I did not plan that. Um, it was the next section of a book in the Bible that we're systematically going through. So sometimes God um, does some good miracles for us like that. So we're going to be talking today not so much about um, civil slavery or um, governmental slavery, economic slavery, but spiritual slavery. Um, when you're in debt, some, some of you know what it's like to be in debt, like literal financial debt, I mean, right? Um, when you're in debt, it's not fun. Where we feel oftentimes like we're a slave, a slave to the debtor. We're counting each month when we make that next payment, and we know that we got 30 or 40 or 50, who knows how many more we got to make to finally get that monkey off our back um, and be free of the debtor, um, be free and not no longer a debtor. We can feel like we're in slavery, isn't that true? And we need to work and labor and perform until we dig ourselves out of that hole. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, but to be debt-free, oh, it's to be free, isn't it? That the last check or um, payment that you send in to what, whatever it might be, that credit card, your house, your car, that last payment feels so good, doesn't it? You're finally free. This thing is mine. <clears throat> this is kind of what we've been talking about in the book of Galatians. As people, as humanity, um, we've been in slavery really to, to a, a taskmaster, which is the law, which is rules, to live up to a perfection that we can never live up to. And we're always under the harsh reality of serving that, that taskmaster. <clears throat> and Galatians has been about just this, that the gospel sets us free from this. The difference between life and death, slavery and freedom, between religion and the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Right? So the verses we approach now in our text, um, they're interesting. They might get lost on you a little bit if you're not too familiar with the stories of the Old Testament. It talks about Abraham and his, and his children a slave woman and a free woman, a, hus a husband and two wives, which, which right off the bat we should just say the Bible doesn't condone um, that. If you look all throughout Scripture, polygamy is always negative. But it's using this story as a way of analogy too. It's not saying that sl slaves can't be saved. It's using, it's taking two people, two sons, the, the son of a slave woman and the, sl the son of a free woman, and it's saying this is an analogy of our salvation in Christ. And he begins to unfold what all this means. So the, the verses we approach now in our text, like I said, if, they, if they're lost on you, um, because you're not too familiar with the Old Testament, the stories of who Abraham is and things like that, hopefully by the end I'll give you some basic understanding and context so you can follow what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 4. So we're going to work through this text, and I think that you're going to see that he presents for us a brilliant and powerful illustration of what it means to be saved, right? What a Christian really is. So we're going to dive in, and we're going to follow the flow of Scripture here. It begins with addressing certain kinds of attitudes that we can have as people, as human beings. It actually addresses one. But Dr. Keller wisely points out that in, in the sort of identi identifying of this one attitude, we can notice other attitudes that we might have throughout our life. Attitudes, what I mean by this, is with respect to how we are made right with God or how we live a right life 
even if we don't think that there's a God, a worthy life. So there are four ways that we can go about this and think about this. These are the very varied attitudes that chances are, at one point in your life, you've probably lived in one or all of these. Okay? The first attitude is the attitude that we see right in our texts. It's the attitude of law obeying and law relying. So you obey the law or rules and you rely on it. That's the first attitude, the one addressed in our text. Tell me, verse 21, you who want to be under the law. Who, who's that in this room? The, for me, those, those kinds of people are very mysterious. Rule followers, people who like rules. They exist, though, don't they? You might be one of them. You might love the employee manual when you get a new job. Or the bylaws. What are all the rules? The Constitution. And you rigorously try to live your life by them so that you can put on display how you followed those rules. And all the, uh, all the other rebellious employees that flout them and show up late, we kind of like, you know, they're the lesser employees. I hope they don't get as good a raise as I do, right? Because I follow the manual. How many rule followers? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many rule followers do we have in the room today? Law obeying, law relying. Here Paul looks square in the eyes of everyone that believes that adherence to a set of rules makes us good or better people, pays for our past mistakes, and makes us right with God and makes the world right with God. He's, he's particularly addressing this group of people. This, this group of people can tend to feel arrogant or better than other people because they don't follow rules. But these same people deep down are insecure because of this lingering doubt that they haven't followed them enough, right? They might be compared to what the Pharisees did in Scripture. So that's the first attitude. The second attitude that the Scriptures doesn't really address but sort of implied um, in the rest of Scriptures is law disobeying but yet law relying. So they rely on the law but they disobey it. Now what do we mean here? They're, these people are likewise, they're religious people. They believe that rules make them good and right people, but they just don't have the willpower to keep them. <laughs> have you been there? Right? You just can't do them. You don't have as much inner strength as the first category of people who seem to just be able to, to order their lives in such a way and to control themselves in such a way as you just can't grapple with. These might be more compassionate, because they've failed, so you might be more compassionate towards other people that have failed, but you live with a deep sense of guilt and fear that God is going to smush you one day, right? You might go to church, but you might remain aloof and sort of uninvolved because of a feeling of unworthiness, shame, and guilt. You've been there? Okay, that's the, third, that's the second attitude. Here's the third attitude. Law disobeying, not law relying. Right? These, are, these are the sorts of people that have thrown out the idea that there is some larger power, some God, divine God, that has a rule that we are to live by. There's no such thing as that. We say, I'm the rule. So we might consider these to be today's intellectual elite, intellectually secular, morally relativistic people. 
the only sin that you can commit is telling other people that they can sin, right? That, that, that they see religion as sort of the villain of the world because it puts on people all of these rules that don't need to be there, right? They choose their own rules. But friends, deep down, they know that there is a higher rule that they're under. Scripture says this in Romans chapter 1. The creation speaks of it. The conscience speaks of it. They do not have the law, but by nature and conscience, they do the law. So they have a strong self-righteousness and a sense of superiority because in their minds they're free, and all you other suckers are following rules from a book written 2,000 years ago. Right? So their rulelessness becomes the rule in that the religious rule followers become to them society sinners. Does that make sense? Have you seen this in the world that we've lived in? So that's the, second, that's the third attitude. Here's the fourth attitude. And this, this is the attitude that encompasses the gospel. It is law-obeying, not law-relying. Okay, let me explain. This is the Christian that understands the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus' work. Jesus' work plus nothing, not following rules. Not, not by obeying the law. But... They do obey the law because they love God, right? Not out of obligation or self-salvation, but out of worship, you see? Because they're confident in that God has rescued them by grace. So they live their lives as a point of worship to the Lord. They have freedom. They are humble and confident and patient towards others in their mistakes. But even this group of people, if you're like me, we can slip back into one of those other three categories. Isn't that true? We can start living under the law again. So in our text, in particular, Paul is addressing this first attitude in verse 21. Tell me, you who obey the law and rely on the law. That's sort of my own translation there. Are you not aware of what the law says? In other words, if you think that keeping rules can make you right with God and erase your mistakes, then the law itself actually contradicts you. And he gets, he gets into why. The scriptures now demonstrate by way of, as you notice this in our text, it's an illustration, a way of an analogy, how relying on the law just doesn't work. It doesn't give you peace. It doesn't make you right with God. As a matter of fact, it does the opposite. It only brings slavery and death. Okay. He goes back to the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their children. One was his wife, Sarah. The other was his servant, Hagar, married to Abraham. And you can read about this in the book of Genesis chapter 16. Okay? Let's, let's look a little bit at the context. Okay? So here's this father, Abraham. Maybe you've heard of Abraham. Maybe you've never heard of Abraham, but... Way long ago, deep in the Old Testament, there's this man named Abraham that God promises that he, through his seed, through his son, will send a savior. And Abraham, if you read the story of Abraham, he has two sons, though, from two different women. One son was named Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Hagar. Hagar was the servant or the slave of Abraham. The other son that he had, his name was Isaac, and Isaac was by Sarah, who was his wife. Okay? 
Like I said, in Genesis 12, God promises that Abraham's heir, his seed, his son, would be the savior of the world. But he's got a problem. Okay? When he promises him this, his wife Sarah is barren. She can't have children. He is very elderly. He's probably around in his late 80s to, to early 90s. So imagine you're 80, 90 years old. You're married to your elderly, barren wife. And God says to you, through your son, through your child, I'm going to send a savior. Your first response will be, well, what, how's this going to work? What are the logistics, God? I need to know. <laughs> because you, you know what you're getting with me and my wife, right? You see who you're, you're, pro you're saying this to, you're promised to. So Abraham has, um, in Genesis 12, God promises that Abraham's heir would be the savior of the world, but he is elderly, his wife is elderly, and Sarah is barren. So they cook up a plan, okay? Sarah suggests Abraham, sleep with your maidservant, Hagar. So he does it. He says, okay, plan A requires a supernatural work of God that we cannot control. He's got to do it. But plan B, that seems more likely. That seems more practical, more possible. If I sleep with young, beautiful, fertile Hagar, then I'll have this son that supposedly is supposed to save us from our sin. You see? So they cook up this plan, and they do it. Now, over a decade later, Abraham's about 100 now, and he has another child with his barren wife, Sarah, Isaac. In Genesis 21... In Genesis chapter 21, this is what we read. The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. You see, because he promised that Abraham and Sarah together would produce the seed and that God would do it by way of a miracle without their help, right? Our text in Galatians 4.23 summarizes all of this. His son, that's Abraham's, by the slave woman, was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born according to the promise. Oh, friends, this is so important because Paul is trying to explain to us how we're saved, how we're made right with God. We are not made right with God according to the flesh, according to our own trying to be good and working it out and following the law, you see? It's not up to us. You know, plan B, plan B is up to us according to the flesh, saving ourselves. Plan A is according to the promise of God, however. So Abraham's told, in verse 23, excuse me, it says, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born according to a promise. Abraham was told that his heir would be the savior of the world. But how? How's this going to happen? If it's through his barren wife, Sarah, it would require a supernatural work of God in which they could contribute nothing. God would have to do it. And the point of the story, friends, is that if we are going to be saved and made right with God, and if God is going to fix this world, he is going to have to do it without our help. You see? That's the principle. One is a savior that they provide. The other, a savior God provides. See, friends, salvation is not according to the flesh. 
it is according to the promise. So the story continues. And they mention this, this young um, baby, this boy named Ishmael. Now, if you know uh, anything about the ancient Near East, um, um, the nation of Israel, Jewish identity in the time that Paul was writing this letter was centered around their ancestry, who they were related, who their dads were, right? They identified as a nation, Israel identified as a nation with Isaac, not with Ishmael. So the Jew in the ancient Near East considered themselves sons of Isaac. Biologically, they were sons of Isaac. So they mixed the message. They thought because that they were biological sons of Isaac, that that must mean that they were right with God. You see? So it's, that by, it's by this ancestral link that they believe themselves to be sons, quote, sons of the promise. Or those which are saved, that's what this means, or made right with God. They also believe that because the sons of Isaac received the law through Moses because Isaac's great, 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 great grandson was Moses, Moses received all the rules of God, the law of God on Mount Sinai. They believe that because they were, we, they were the ancestors of both Isaac and Moses, that they were right with God because they were heirs of Isaac and they possessed the law and they kept the law. So biological seeds of Isaac and obedient to the law of Moses. Because of these things, check off both of those, they believed that they were right with God and therefore free. But Paul is arguing here the opposite. He is saying you are slaves. This is what the faction is all about. This is the occasion of why Paul even wrote this letter to this um, church in Galatia. In verses 24 and 25, Paul completely objects to their believing that because they were the biological offspring of Isaac and because they kept the rules of Moses, that they were right with God. He says in verse 24, these things are, be, are being taken figuratively. The women represents two covenants. One covenant is from Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. And he is saying, you are the children of Hagar. If you believe, you are in slavery, if you believe that keeping the law of Moses or the rules of God can make you right with him. Hagar equals Ishmael equals law keeping. That's what Paul's getting at here. And all this leads to slavery. So Paul is arguing that salvation by Sinai, Mount Sinai, that's where the law came to Moses on that mountain. He says that salvation by law-keeping at Sinai are like Abraham and Hagar because while they acknowledge that they need to be made right with God, they believe that being made right with God is something they can do, that they can manage themselves, like Abraham and Hagar's plan. See? By sleeping with Hagar, Abraham was relying on himself and his own efforts. He had faith in himself not in the promise of God. You see the difference? And Ishmael was the product. The result was disaster. Sarah eventually would become jealous of Hagar, the family was divided, and it would lead to centuries and millennia of strife between Israel and the descendants of Hagar. Friends, when we aim to save ourselves, it only creates chaos and dysfunction. These Galatians were proud to be descended from Isaac, 
but Paul, in the sense that they believed that they were saved by keeping the law, but Paul claims that spiritually they were slaves. They were spiritual descendants of slavery, of Ishmael, because they approached God with their own performance. They winded up in a terrible fix, just like we do when we try to do this, rather than trusting in the supernatural grace of God to save us. Now Paul's on, Paul mentions Ishmael, then he mentions Isaac. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that we don't attain rightness with God, but receive it from Christ. We don't earn it. We don't save ourselves. We don't bank it. The Bible teaches that we are not righteous, not any one of us, because we've broken the law, have not kept the law. And because of that, we're spiritually dysfunctional and separated, separated from God so that in Scripture, we don't attain righteousness or earn it or keep it, but we receive a foreign righteousness on ourselves, the one provided through Jesus Christ, through his supernatural birth, his death for sin and resurrection. God must save or we are doomed. He must save us because we are helpless to save ourselves, friends. You can't do it. The fix that we're in is too big. Eventually, though, we see Abraham starts to believe God. He realizes that his self-saving plan to provide a savior through his own works, through his own self, isn't going to work, so he believes God, and he joins with his wife Sarah. He switches, taxes, he, he switches tactics, believes God, and God opens the barren womb of Sarah. Friends, in the same way, the Galatian church then, and this church today, our church right now, all of us need not look inwardly, but backwards to Christ. You see, to the supernatural provision of God's better son, Jesus. He is our savior, and he's the one that frees us. Isaac, the free woman, not the slave, had a son born of a promise, not of their own doing. And that brings freedom. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem that, above, that is above is free, and she is our mother. So here's what it's talking about here. The Jerusalem above, heaven, that's what it's talking about being right with God, living him in an eternal home and right relationship with him. The Jerusalem that is above is free. The Jerusalem below, what's he talking about there? The biological offspring, rule-keeping of the law of Moses, that's slavery. That's an earthly religion, and it cannot make you right with God. The Jerusalem below is um, imaged here in Hagar and Ishmael. It depicts self-reliance and slavery. The Jerusalem above is pictured here in Sarah and Isaac and depicts the promise of God and reliance on it for our freedom. See? So this has enormous consequences, okay? If you guys all fell asleep up until now, I hope at this point that this will really hammer home what is the point and principle of Paul's writing this. If this is true... If this is all true, it has enormous implications for us, for our lives. It means that saved people that are made right with God are barren failures. In other words, God, the gospel is for people 
who are entirely un, un, um, unable to dig themselves out of the sinful hole that they're in, for the barren and for the failure. Listen to verse 27 in Galatians 4. It's quoting Isaiah chapter 54. This is really powerful. It said, do you remember this? It says, be glad, barren woman. Now, just keep, keep in mind the context here. This is 3,000 years ago. This is Isaiah. Barren women, their lives were over. They had no children. They needed, in this culture, they needed to be married to have any security or hope. And if they were married and had no children, that was the end of them. They needed to, that, that husband now needed to get another wife so that they could have children. That's why all over scripture, when women couldn't have children, um, it, it was a great shame to them. Now, that's not true in scripture. That was a culture that, that put that on them, that, that the Bible never put that on them, but they were in a culture that put that on them, and the Bible undermines it and reverses it, and we'll see that in a second. So, so back then, this was a very difficult challenge for a woman. And let me just say this today. It's still a difficult challenge for women today to be barren. So Isaiah, so Isaiah 54 should come as a shock. Be, be glad, you barren woman, you who have never born a child. Oh, friends, I wonder sometimes, like, has Isaiah ever held the hand of a woman who can't bear a child? How difficult that is, how much that grieves them. But Isaiah says, be glad, barren woman, you who have never born a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman, the barren woman, than of her who has a husband. What's he talking about? How, is, how, how does a barren woman have more children than a woman with a husband who has many children? What's the logic there? Friends, this Isaiah text that Paul quotes in Galatians 4 is written 1,200 years after Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. So Isaiah is pointing backwards to Hagar and Sarah. He's saying Isaiah and Paul are saying Sarah has more, barren Sarah has more children than Hagar, who was young, fertile, and beautiful. This is 1,200 years after Abraham, this Isaiah text, 600 years before Christ was even born. Israel, at the time in, in Isaiah's writing, was in exile. Israel had sinned against God. They had worshipped everything but him. They had a million idols. They sacrificed their children on the, on the arms of, of these idols. They had all of these sort of, sort of pagan sex cult rituals. All of this stuff had crept into the nation of Israel. So God sends them into, into exile as a discipline. They lose their home and they lost their freedom. And now they're in exile. So what happens to Israel? Isaiah is saying, Israel, you're barren. You got nothing. You are weak failures. <laughs> right? That's what's going on here. That's why they were in the wilderness. They, and they knew it too. They knew that they were barren. They, they knew that they were weak, that they had failed and blown it and lost everything and that they couldn't do anything about it. But friends, the point of Isaiah 54 and Galatians chapter 4 is that is, the precise, that is precisely, precisely the place that you need to be to be saved. You are, if you are barren, in other words, if you are a barren, you are ripe to bear fruit. 
and to have life. It's precisely the place where God can save and does save. When all of your reliance to self-saving are spent and gone. Because you know that you just can't do it. So in this Isaiah text in Galatians 4, God is telling them that now that they had finally realized that they were helpless and only needed him to rescue them, he would. They were always helpless, by the way, always needed him, but it's in those barren moments of life, in those dry wildernesses that we finally wake up to it and recognize it. When we see that in our bankruptcy, that we can reap a harvest of life because of our good God's gift. So there, here we go again, okay? There's two women. One is young, beautiful and fertile, Hagar. The other is old and barren. And God saved the world through the barren one. God saved the world through the one who couldn't have children, the very promise that he made by which the world would be saved. God saved the world through the barren one, not the fertile one. And friends, let's keep in mind that there was another woman, not barren, but a virgin, that would have another son by the same miraculous power of God's spirit, and it's by his stripes that we are healed. If this is true, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've lost. Friends, if this is true, it is in the barren wilderness of your life that God can save you and give you fruit. There's a historic church in Harlem, New York City. It's called Bethel. Um, it's one of the, the largest um, African-American black churches in the United States. It was started in the early 1900s um, by a white German woman from Manhattan. <laughs> Very interesting. This young white German woman loved the Lord, lived in Manhattan, so she began a Bible study. And wouldn't you know it, two black women from Harlem start coming to this Bible study and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And just so thrilled with this new faith and the salvation that God had provided, they said, can we take this into Harlem, into our home? Will you come with us and start a Bible study with us there? So she's thrilled. She's excited. Of course, she wants to do this. This is God's gift, right? The, the problem, though, is that this German woman, she's engaged. She has a fiancé who is a racist, and he wasn't having it. He told her that she needed to choose him between him and the ministry. So he draws a line in the sand, makes an ultimatum, and says, if you do this, if you go to Harlem, I'm leaving you. So she's agonizing over this because she loved him. She wants children to be married just like anybody else. But in her agonizing and in her praying, she came across this passage in Isaiah and Galatians. Quote, more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So she follows God's call and she loses her fiance. And today, there's an African American, a black church in Harlem that's the largest one in the nation to this day, 100 years later. 
this desolate woman who lost her husband because she loved Jesus Christ has more children than if she had married that man. Do you believe that? That came with loss. That came with heartache. That came with a cross. But friends, following Jesus Christ, even in our barrenness, in our emptiness, always reaps a, always reaps a fruitful harvest. See? So we've got to ask ourselves a question. Can I ask you this as we close? Are you in exile like Israel? Are you barren? Are you desolate? Is it your own fault? <laughs> right? Sometimes we end up in those places because we make poor choices. Friends, do not fear. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you. And he will make you new. And in his redemption, he will give you more than you lost. Amen? He will give you more than you lost. Job lost everything. And then when God restored Job, he had more at the end than what he had at the beginning. See, friends, I'm not suggesting to you that you come to Christ and, and he gives you more in this life. You come to Christ and you, you lost a wife, he'll give you another. You lost a job, he'll give you a better paying one. I'm not suggesting some kind of prosperity gospel. What I am saying is that when you come to Christ in your emptiness, you get more in the sense that he fills you with his love, peace, and joy. You have the hope of eternal life, and that is much bigger, much more valuable than any amount of money or anything that you've lost in this life. Amen? So you come to Christ in your barrenness, in your wilderness, in your exile, and he gives you the whole world. He gives you him and everything that he's made. Amen? So don't be afraid. Trust in God. It's out of the ashes of life, out of the losses of life, that God saves us, adorns us, forgives us, and provides for us such fruit as we never would have had unless we went through that loss to begin with. Trust in the Lord's salvation, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask you, Lord, give us faith. Give us the gift of desolation so that we stop trusting in this world, stop trusting in our own solutions, stop trusting in our own ingenuity. God, give us the gift of desolation so that the only way out is if you save us. Because, God, that's the place, that gift of desolation, that absolute reliance on, on you for our salvation is where we find life. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would give our church the gift of desolation, of exile, so that we would stop trusting in ourselves, in our plans, in our money, in our ideas, in our intelligence, and we would begin to trust you and need you to save us. God, if there's anyone here this morning listening online or sitting here in person that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You have lived a walking death up until now, separated from God because of sin. And he tells you the moment you trust in Jesus by his free grace and his work and not yours, he saves you and makes you right with him. So cry out to him, save me, God, I'm a sinner. I want to be right with you. My life is found in you and not in your creation. 
Oh, friends, if God, if the Holy Spirit is working in you a true repentance and faith in Christ, you are saved, you're his child, you have an eternal hope, and you have nothing to worry about. You have a new father. God, we pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we would lean on you as believers, that we would trust and believe in you. Would you supernaturally send us this community, your spirit, so that we would be filled with your spirit and walk in your spirit daily, and that we would see the light of the gospel, your kingdom, multiply around us. That you would save people, God, that we find um, when we, at the movie or at the school when we hand out backpacks or in our, in our neighbor's yards or in our backyard. God, I pray, Lord, that you would multiply your kingdom around us, send your light through us. We need your help. We can't do it. So God, save. Save us. Save our neighbors. Save our community. And God, give us the power of your spirit. Help us to read your word, to pray your word, to believe your word, to obey your word. I pray, Lord, that you would do these things for us as we serve you in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.